Welcome to the Leap Podcast. This is Kat Fan, Tammy Tran, and Tammy Bowie, your hosts for the Leap Podcast. Leap stands for Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics. This is our second season. We have made it to the second season of the Leap Podcast. And we know that Call was actually a award recipient for Leap Celebration last year. Congrats. I'm sure you have basked in that glory as in the many, many accomplishments that you as an organization and you personally have accomplished. So we just wanted to send an invite because you are has, have been such this prevalent thought leader. Um, and we really wanted to open this conversation to pretty much the two pandemics that have plagued us for the last two years, right? With the COVID-19 virus um, and also the rampant hate crimes that have been affecting, you know, our communities as well. So actually we could just have Bo more realistically, since some of our folks might not be familiar with the great work that you do, what CALL stands for, we would love for our audience to be reintroduced or introduced for the first time to glad that we were able to make timing work. That's half the trick these days, right? (laughs) Um, So I'm Bo Taurabi, and I'm the executive and network director here at a state organization called the Coalition of Asian American Leaders. Um, I've had a long career now um, of serving um, the Asian American Pacific Islander community, both very locally, but also nationally, and then back to now a state-wide um, organization that I helped to co-found. Um, so the Coalition of Asian American Leaders, or otherwise known as CAL, is a state-wide um, organization that brings together Asian American leaders from across the state, from different sectors, uh, ethnicities, and generations together, really for the purposes of learning, connecting, and acting together on behalf um, and for the benefit of communities. And so um, I think part of that recognition is to also recognize that it doesn't matter what sector you work in, um, you still care about your communities and that you still want to be a part of defining um, both the problem as well as the solutions, right? Um, So Cal is that space. We also really um, work very hard to not create a uber narrative about who our communities are, but to create the spaces where we can talk about the complexities of being a part of this uh, racial construct that is politicized and has consequences for the community, right? So um, a lot of our spaces are really about people talking about those nuances that um, and complexities that matter um, and uh, working together um, to learn about each other, but to also um, uh, support the community. Um, And then lastly, we work with uh, leaders from across different generations, because um, that is a really important part of what we believe is uh, important for movements. Um, And so, um, so that's a little bit about our work. And I've spent most of my life really, um, 
just trying to figure out what what I wanted to be. And so, so I feel like I'm still trying to do that. I, um, you know, I came to this country as a refugee child. And like many, um, many um, Southeast Asian Americans who are of my generation came as a child and um, was um, placed in a position of having to help our elders and our um our people navigate. And in that process, as I was growing up, I started to just question lots of things like, why do we have to do things that way? Or how ill-prepared systems were to actually help um, people like my parents, like my community succeed. And um, and then uh, learned um, to work in the nonprofit sector, both in serving the needs, but to also um, advocate for changes um, uh, through uh, systems and things. And so um, found that, you know, very much uh, my own lived experience became a foundation for the things that I believed I could help change and um, have um, kind of stuck around (laughs) in in just helping to serve the community in a variety of ways. So most of that is really focused now on uh, building leaders um, leaders from within the community, but also looking at policy change, um, data and research, and really organizing communities to build um, power um, to shape the decisions that impact all of us on a daily basis. So that's a little bit about me, about the organization that I'm part of, and uh, what I guess I often spend all of my days thinking about. So. <laughs> Um, you know, I before I ask my question, I was going to say, Bo, do you know um, Kai Ying and, and Lisa in D.C.? And I, I was telling Kat earlier, I was an intern many moons ago under Lisa Hasegawa when she started um, National Capacity. And I think at that time it was just Bo Tao. I don't think you had um, the hyphenation. <laughs> was, uh, I was not married then, so I was just Bo Tao. But I remember when you came as an intern today. So you were very young and we were all younger too, but <laughs> you're much younger. Well, I, I, well, I bring that up. I bring that up because, you know, um, so often, Bo, we can run into or connect with people and not get the chance to, to circle back to thank them. Mm-hmm. And you and Lisa and Kai Ying, um, took me under your wing. And I remember Lisa joked about in DC, um, many of you worked in the same building. I don't remember you remember this joke, but she would say, cause I think even um, JCL was in the same building. Um, but just so Tammy Tran is also wearing cat. I remember Lisa said, you know, if anything happened to all of us and they were to bomb this building, um, we would, all the API leaders would be gone, you know? <laughs> and, and like, amazingly it was, um, the uh, organizations that were run at the time, Bo, were all led by you women. Yes. I mean, that was the amazing thing. And then those were the, uh, the, and you were the women I looked up to during some really formative years for my um, my eventual career. So when you say you're figuring it out, I feel like 
I got to watch you all and and I'm here because I watched women like you. So I just wanted to make sure I acknowledged that first. Um, it, it wasn't easy for you during that time to do things, the things that you're doing. Um, and we don't always get to circle back to tell people that. So I wanted to tell you that. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you a question about um, when you were saying that you started this organization because you feel that it doesn't matter what sector you may be in, that we all, if we care, we can come together and make a difference. And I think that really is foundational to what Leap is about. Um, And I was also glad that you told your story a little bit, because I think in telling our stories, that does speak to the nuances of each of our communities, even though we make up this larger um, community. Um, And I was going to ask you if you could share a little bit about your your experience as a refugee um, and what you feel comfortable with, because we all have experiences. You just happen to take yours and then want to do something to help others um, with it. And so can you explain a little bit about maybe what it was like for you growing up and what and what what motivated you actually do a career out of make a career out of of uh, of your your lived experience as a refugee? Yeah. So, you know, I came to this country when I was six years old and I'd never gone to school except for those classes in the refugee camps, right, that sort of got children ready for coming to this country. And my parents had never gone to school because they were just farmers, uh, agrarian farmers. Um, And so I think when we came to this country, we got here in 1979 and systems were not in place. Um, So I think when people think about refugees now and, you know, these refugee organizations that are here to receive them and to help them. Well, that didn't exist when we first came, right? Because remember, the Refugee Act was not passed until the 1980s, which then established the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which then funded these mutual aid associations locally, as well as these resettlement agencies. And so, um, so a lot of um, the people who came early on had were sponsored by churches or individual um, families and things like that. But you kind of had to figure out your own way. And so I always say, you know, the privilege of coming so young is that I learned English very quickly, even though I'd never gone to school. And eventually um, was my parents like interpreter for everything, right? I went with them to order, you know, food at uh, Burger King to going with them to doctor's appointments to going with them to, you know, to the welfare office to figure out what benefits they could get to help them. Um, And even going with them to their English class and their first days on their jobs. Like I remember all of those things, right? Um, And um, so um, I got to see a lot of their life and what it was like for to be them to have to navigate a whole system that was ill prepared for them and that was really not interested in helping them succeed. Right. So, you know, when you're a child, you just do whatever your parents tell you. But eventually I got to an age where um when I was in junior high, it had gotten to the point where my parents freely offered my services for, to my relatives, right? Saying, sure, bring all your mail, bring all your paperwork. My daughter will help you. And, you know, you all know this. 
<laughs> so, you know, so uh, I would come home from school and I would have aunties waiting for me with, um, you know, their mail, which is most of it was just junk mail, but some of it was very important. Right. So um, and they didn't have people to help them. But it's like when you become helpful to your community, the word just like spreads, right? <laughs> and so I was uh, put in that position. And I was um, really upset about it, because I was a teenager, I wanted to have fun, like my friends, but I would come home, and then I'd have to help my aunties do all their paperwork, or my mom would say, Oh, no problem, my daughter will go with you and things. And I'd be really upset with my mom and say, why do you why do you tell them that I can do this? They have kids, why can't their kids do it? And my mother was, um, she let me rent. But afterwards, you know, that motherly look, she based after my aunts left, she said, don't ever do that again. You know, you should be ashamed of yourself, right? Because uh, you, you are so lucky that you got to come to this country young and that you are educated and that you have a skill that people need. Um, and that, uh, and that's why they're here. And she said, you know, basically, trust me, if you don't have anything that people <laughs> uh, think is helpful, they're not going to come to you, right? So, um so it sort of really helped me put into perspective the privilege that I had as a young person who had education that spoke English. I didn't know any more than these um, elders, but I spoke English right? and they didn't speak English um, and I could um, navigate. So I did that, you know, like all, I think, refugee children um, uh, of, of my generation. And eventually, I just got to the stage where because I'd seen so much, I just kept thinking like, well, this is such a, you know, dumb way of doing things, basically, right? Like, why do poor people have to jump through these hoops, right? Um, and uh, this doesn't seem like the best idea, um, because my mom was experiencing it, you know, my uh, relatives were experiencing it. And when I was going to college, I thought about like, what do I want to become, right? And my parents, although they wanted education for us, they didn't know what advice to give us in terms of what we should become. I mean, the usual, like, I hope my kids become doctors, lawyers and things, but even that they didn't really know what it meant, right? So um, uh, one of my jobs in college was to um, support the social workers who ran a support group for this uh, group of Hmong uh, widows during the war, um, who became widows during the war. And I just found such affinity to them, like listening to their stories and hearing about their experience as these women who didn't have husbands. Um, that was sort of like abandoned by the community, <laughs> Um and things. And so, you know, and I think my presence, even though there were white social workers there, my presence in that group gave all these older uh, Hmong women who were widows, um, like just comfort. And then they also felt like even though I was a college student, and I didn't know anything, they they treated me so well, right? Like they thought I was some somehow helpful. And I just really loved uh, being in that space with them. And then I just thought, you know what, 
it, um, why am I trying to so hard to become something else when actually I'm actually helpful, right, in these situations and that I could actually serve my community and um, help to explain certain things or help to um, give comfort to, um, you know, people who uh, wanted to share what was happening in their lives, um, but uh, didn't necessarily feel that if they explained it to a white person that they would understand, right? Um, so, so, you know, so that really just, um, I think gave me some comfort, like, of course, you know, I could serve my community um, and I could help be a part of these kinds of solutions. So, so that's kind of like that first experience that I still remember vividly that gave me some confidence to be like, you know, I could have, um, I didn't have to be anything more <laughs> than I was. And I could actually find ways to be helpful to building um, a community and um, uh, contribute to organizations that did the same. So that's kind of how I landed in the sector. And I've spent a career that both um, is uh, on the side of direct services. Um, I became executive director at a very young age serving refugee women um, because that's where I found a home. And then I came to DC and was executive director there. Tammy, when you came, I was still fairly young, but I thought like, you know, anything I didn't know I could learn. <laughs> and um, that for me, it was more about being a part of trying to shape policy. And that's how I ended up in DC. And then I spent, you know, a decade in philanthropy and felt very much like I needed to be back in the local community context. And, and that's how I ended up helping to create um, this org nonprofit that I now run. Though I love you, um, what you shared about the interconnections between when when Tammy was just a young activist, right, and you met her, and all the things that you shared. It's a, there's a lot of positive impact that you made um, in such such a short time. Um, I wanted to hear a little bit more about what we've been talking to other um, guests is around API hate, as you know, and how it's um, how it's come out in our communities in this past year, you know, due to the, the, the pandemic. Um, looking at all the things that you've done and all the positive impacts and the help that you provided to our refugee communities, in particular, you know, our um, our Southeast Asian communities, what are some of the challenges that you've seen, you know, over the past years? Um, and how do you what are specific ways that you think that we're going to be able to, uh, you know, um, address some of the longstanding issues, but at the same time, the heightened awareness that we have around, you know, API hate and the things that we've seen um, you know, happen through the news, but also that we know are happening within our own families and communities. Yeah, I mean, I think the important thing to remember is mm -hmm. that what's happening is not new, right? The context is different. Um, and I think the ways in which um, we are experiencing it might be different, but in the community's experience, the anti-Asian stuff has always been there, right? And it's both interpersonal in terms of people um, acting out in ways that um, are harmful, uh, both physically and otherwise, um, to Asian individuals who are um, targeted to also systemic, right? That um, I can't tell you um, how difficult it's been in this time to have witnessed um, the constant showing of attacks on 
Asian individuals that's um, that can be per- perpetrated in an environment where our most and highest, uh, um, you know, elected uh, office, um, where people can um, make it appear like that is um, that is understandable, right? That somehow because we're in a pandemic and people are angry um, about the things that they can't control, and that if we um, that if people feel pain, they can cause it on somebody else um, because they believe that it's linked in some way. So that is how deeply entrenched racism is is in this country, is that when we mention China, Asian Americans experience the, um, you know, the outburst of that, right, in a real uh, violent way um, that we would never get if we were talking about Russia. White people don't end up being harmed because we talked about another country that is uh, white presenting, <laughs> um, you know, so I think those are the ways in which uh, racism is, is is entrenched, but also to remember, in particular, serving this community of Southeast Asians, that racism is also systemic, right, that um, when we talk about things like incarceration, it's Southeast Asians who bore the brunt of having incarceral um, responses that punish us for um, for lots of different things, right? That uh, Southeast Asians um, are um, now caught in deportation and all of those things. And that is systemic uh, racism in a way that um, we don't often talk about, but that it exists, right? So, so you know, I think my first push for everybody is that this is not new. Um, it should not be a surprise. In fact, we should have anticipated it. We should always anticipate that when there is a national crisis, um, people of um, color uh, end up cause, um, bearing the brunt of people's anger and whatever else they can't um, seem to figure out, right? And so um, for me, that's important. And I um, and I think that it's the reasons why, like for our organization, when the president, uh, President then Trump started using those terminologies, we were already hearing from individuals in the communities to say, oh, you know, um, I'm going to the store and I'm not being served, right? Like cashiers just refusing to ring them up. (laughs) And so when that pattern of behavior starts to change, people were already mentioning it. And so um, I think that um, that means that there's a direct consequence for the community in terms of what our leaders say, what what um, what we allow to happen and things like that. But I also want to say that, you know, we have children, um, myself included, and I don't know if it's true for all of you who go through a whole, whole education systems without ever learning about any who looks like them without ever reading anything about Asian American history. And um, that means that we expect that if people want to learn about um, people who look like us, they have to pay for those courses when they get to college, right? But it's not going to be embedded in their education. So how could we expect a country and a society in America that would actually be accepting of us if we are not a part of the very foundations of knowledge, right, (laughs) that we teach our children. And so everything that we do, um, you know, when I want to teach my daughter 
about Asian American history, I have to go the extra mile of actually teaching her myself or giving her exposure because she's not going to learn at school. Right. Um, and so, um, so, you know, the outcome of that is that um, when, when tragedy happens, people can be empathetic and sympathetic, but they don't fundamentally have it in them to understand the connections and history and, um, and that we can't expect them to because none of us were taught, right? So, um, so I hope that what we do is not to just look at these incidents and say, oh, how horrible but that we find ways to really think about the fundamental systems that should shape um, our knowledge in this country. And then that um, we also uh, understand, because my family, like many Asian Americans, um, also came to this country not fully understanding racism and how racism has shaped this country, right? We understand the experience of um, imperialism and America's coming to other nations and things, but um, how uh, fundamentally racism has shaped this country is something that um, you learn when you get here. <laughs> and then you have to learn even more about how, you know, how the takings of land from indigenous people or from uh, slavery helped to build this nation. And then how Asian Americans, Chinese, uh, Chinese and Japanese, Filipino, uh, all these uh, low wage workers came to build this nation, but we were kept out of all of our history books, right? Um, and that, you know, that's like, that's still a lot of undoing. <laughs> so, so I guess, uh, Tammy, what I want to say is that um, I feel hopeful because I think young people are asking those questions. That's why they want their curriculums in schools to be different. They want exposure to teachers who look like them, but also um, courses and uh, lessons that reflect who they are. Um, and I think that gives me great hope because it means that they know what they're not getting. Right. Um, and then I think in terms of the incidents, I hope that um, we we instead of say, uh, act surprise that anti-Asian violence happens because of what's happening around the globe um, and that those sentiments are carried here in this country, that we should not be surprised for it. In fact, we should be more prepared to make sure that victims are served, that victims are acknowledged, and that when harm is done, that there is accountability. But at the same time, the solutions can't be um, always carceral, right? Because many of these incidents um, uh, that in fact happen, when I have spoken to community leaders about it, um, what they're asking for is not um, that the person who perpetrated it is punished. They're wanting to um, figure out um, how their communities could be more um, um, I guess, more safe, more, um, how do we address some of the underlying conditions so that um, they don't have to bear the brunt of what is happening, right? So I think there's lots of different things that are tied together, but I also think the harm of presenting what's happening to Asian Americans right now as only interpersonal violence actually 
will limit the ways in which we can uh, find uh, better solutions, right? Because it is so deeply entrenched in the history of racism. And so if we only point to interpersonal violence and say, just hold the perpetrators accountable, we're not talking about how we got to this point of why uh, why anti-Asian sentiments and violence becomes acceptable, right? Just for so many people, when they are in a pandemic, we're all in the same pandemic, <laughs> you know? But if people find it acceptable to say, well, I'm going to target, you know, somebody that I think caused it, um, that's where racism is so deeply entrenched in our thought, in our behavior, in our beliefs, right? So, um, yeah, it's a lot to think about. So, Bo, um, you gave us a lot to think about, and um, I want to connect a couple of thoughts. Um, You mentioned earlier when you were talking about your career and how you got to your place and how you only knew to be yourself and be this person that you've always been. Um, I I feel like much of what we do as leaders um, is taking a, a, a leap of faith. We don't always know exactly what that path may be, just like you didn't know exactly that you're going to be an executive director, although one would argue that back in the day when you were sorting through mail and and giving that kind of counsel, you were already doing uh, uh, consultations at that point, um, even if you were voluntold. And I guess my question was going to be, um, what have you learned about yourself? What have you learned about holding on to cultural values as being an Asian American that you're very proud of? But what are some times where you feel the rub, I think, of the Western society that we live in and balancing, um, you know, the need to really step out and do things that culturally may not be valued as Asian Americans, right? Like stirring the pot, uh, making waves. These are things that LEAP unpacks um, in its um, leadership trainings also. Um, And I think what you talk about today is this reminder that you can be authentically you and lead in that way. And so I'm curious if you can address like anytime though that you may have felt those tensions between being authentic and then also running up against those, um, those tensions. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, growing up, I, I, I think all of us want to belong to, um, groups of people to be respected and valued for our skills and ideas and all of those things. And I think that that's just both human nature and it's the process of growing up and all of those things, right? We're trying to kind of find our place in the world and we're going to land where we feel most welcomed and all of those things. And I think that that's what I learned from my community is that even though it's a community that has suffered um, for thousands of years um, um, and, and things like that, that it has really been the community will to stay together to create a sense of belonging that is important, right? So wherever I go, um, that's still really important and that's what I take away. Um, and then um, because I think that when you belong to um, a, a community, to a group of people, you know that when you make mistakes, uh, that that mistake is just purely a mistake. You're not going to be like excommunicated and things like that. Um, but but I think what I've also learned from my people is that 
Um, the only thing you know for sure is that change is going to happen, right? That it's constant. And we adapt to our circumstances. We learn new skills as necessary to survive, right? Um, and, and things like that. And so what I take away from that is that um, I don't have to learn resilience. In fact, all I have to do is turn to my people's history and to know that I was born into resilience. What I need to learn is really about um, uh, the shortcomings of <laughs> systems and how I utilize um, skills um, and what kinds of skills I need to learn in order to um, to uh, create the kind of change that I believe in. And so um, I think that kind of security, um, I, I, I have learned to appreciate because I also see in this country, um, in particular in indigenous communities or um, in um, the uh, historic black communities that were brought as slaves, the attempt to destroy cultures and the attempt to take away every sense of belonging to a people, right? Um, and how much that has uh, damaged um, um, people's um, uh, sense of who they are and who they belong to and all of those things. And so even though my people has been through a lot, um, it's taught me that I have a foundation that, you know, I'm privileged to have and I'm grateful for. Um, and then I think in that leadership journey, um, Leaders are not people who I think who wait to to find the perfect solution. You are just finding the best solution for now. And that, um, you know, I always say I grew up with a lot of no's. People told me, well, no, you can't do that because you're a girl. No, you can't do that because you're an immigrant. No, you can't do that because you don't speak English. Or, oh, I've never seen a person who, you know, who is like you, who's Hmong, whose parents like don't have this much whatever, um, achieve these things. So there was a lot of no's in my life. And I think I decided to say yes to myself, right? So what I've learned is you have to say yes first and find the reasons for why you can't do something. <laughs> so the no's come because you hit roadblocks and you're like, okay, that's not for me. Maybe I need, to, you know, uh, certain skills or I need certain connections or all of those things. But if you start with no, you're never going to do anything because uh, we, um, um, we limit ourselves because of what we fear in terms of failures. But I think yes gives you the permission to be like, okay, I'm just going to try. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> I don't know if this is the right, right uh, solution, but I'm going to do it and I will learn from it. And I think that um, that's really allowed for me to um, just move and not worry too much about whether it makes sense for men in my community, because they think that, you know, I'm, I'm just among daughters, so <laughs> so I should not be speaking or all of those things, right? Um, or, you know, um, white men in the spaces where, <laughs> you know, they feel like, well, who are you? Why are you here? You know, I we are not used to seeing people like you or they tokenize you and things like that. So I guess, um, you know, what I will say is that um, uh, for me, it's important to uh, to to know that you're not looking for the perfect solution. You're just looking for the best idea right now. And that it's important to uh, surround yourself with people who believe that you you can try and that uh, mistakes are okay, but also um, that there are um, 
I think the the privilege of being executive director, Tammy, as you know, is that um, many of us start on our own, but eventually we get to the point where you are putting together groups of people, whether they be community volunteers, board members, um, your staff, um, all kinds of people together. And what you have most of is people resources who want to do good together. And that it isn't about, um, although, you know, we get to the point where we need resources, really your best asset is the people around you and what they're willing to contribute. And so I have always felt that, um, I don't have to be the person who knows everything. If I have a question, I will raise it. Um, and uh, I will always find, I have always found that somebody who is smarter about that thing usually rises up and will say, sure, no problem. I can help you establish a nonprofit because I, I'm an attorney or, you know, I'm a policy, you know, person and I know how to read that, right? <laughs> um, so um, uh, I, I think that if you allow for people's gifts to um, to emerge, they will willingly share it um, and and things like that. So I think I don't have the perfect um, solutions, but I think leaders are also not people who grow up thinking like, I'm going to be a leader. You just do. <laughs> And you create space and you create invitation and you um, uh, you are consistent and persistent and uh, you keep doing. And then eventually you figure out, like, who's beside you now and, um, uh, you know, uh, how do you uplift them? And at the same time, how do you keep going even when some people might need to step back and, and things like that? Right. So that's um, uh, that's the. I guess the privilege of having to serve my community, um, but also um, helping to shape uh, the ways in which we can move and work together, right, across um, all of our bountyless <laughs> talents in the community um, and uh, to not be defined by our field or our sectors um, because leadership is really about what you do, not your position or not where you're at um, and things like that. Bo, you talk a lot about how you have been so critical to uncapping leadership of the network that you have. And as we close our conversation, there's so many things I know that our listeners will walk away with from just hearing about your your perspective. Uh, we'd love to just hear about um you know, a leap of faith that you've recently taken. So I think throughout your life, you've taken that right as as a refugee. But most recently, if you can share with us a leap of faith um, that you've taken and how did you feel right before you made that jump and, and what pushed you forward? And if you can share in the context of, you know, we, we talked about, you know, young people, you've talked about your daughter, but, you know, something that that can push someone along who's, you know, making a decision about taking that leap of faith, especially when it comes to leadership, you know, using your voice, using your place. Yeah, I feel like every day is a little bit right. of a leap of faith. <laughs> 
uh, in this work, right? I will share uh, really an experience of helping to shape the what's called the Anti-Racism mm-hmm. and Intersectional Justice Fund at the the API Civic Engagement Fund. Um, so we're we're our grant recipient of the Civic Engagement Fund. And um, when all of this was happening, I started calling folks because I was trying to kind of figure out, I said, you know, I'm hearing about all these stories in Minnesota. I'm trying to understand how groups across the country are serving their communities and also trying to understand um um, what, what, what is actually happening? Like who's capturing what kinds of incident reports and why, and then who's actually serving the community and working on some, some policies and things like that. But sort of my line of question led to some more smaller working groups. And so, um, so, you know, it, it created this fund, uh, at the civic engagement fund that, um, made, um, that now has grown to, um, I think last year they um, gave out um, maybe $2 million or something to grassroots groups across the country. Um, and part, part, part of why I'm sharing that is that it's not a leap of faith, but it's really about um, um, trying to pose um, a question uh, for a problem that I was trying to find answers to. And when I, um, when I asked that question, lots of groups were also thinking about um, those things or trying to answer the same question. Um, but I think that for me, it wasn't about like, could I find an answer for me? It was sort of saying, well, if we all come in common, uh, share that experience and are trying to find answers to that uh, problem, what is it that um, we could do to, um, together? And so I um, was able to really uh, work with the fund to create that fund. Um, and of course, there's a self-interest there, right? Because um, that self-interest is how do I um, address a a challenge that is facing the community now, what do I do uh, in my own organization? But in that process was able to help to create something that ultimately invests in many more organizations beyond us, because the truth is, it's not just about having me and the organization that I work with figure out what to do with our communities here. This is a systemic um, and societal challenge that we're facing in Asian American communities across the country. And across the country, grassroots groups are not getting the resources they need um, to support them and responding um, to their local communities when something happens. So I think for me, that was about like, go ahead and share what's happening with you, figure out who else is interested in the same conversations, create uh, generously. And that means not to covet the relationships, right? <laughs> um, so that it was like, oh, just give us funding locally here. It was like, well, I know if we need it here then everybody else needs it too, right? And how do we create a bigger pot for all of us? Um, And so I feel like um, I didn't quite know that it would lead into that, but I'm really glad that it did because uh, I feel like it's one of the very few funds that um, is committed to 
funding actually hyper-local response. Um, and it's the local work that keeps our community safe. And it's the local work that helps to um, address um, situations when it arises and all of those things. And I think collectively, if we are all stronger in local communities, then we can be stronger nationally. And that is still uh, where we have a lot of room to grow um, in the Asian American community, right? So. Yeah, so that's a very tangible, I guess, <laughs> thing that I'm still recalling about. I can't believe that um, it ended up creating this fund to support groups across the country. Well, thank you so much, Bo. We really appreciate your time and all that you share with us. I love what you said about creating generously and bringing people into spaces and, and sharing your network. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you.